Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame. A place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. I went to this octogenarian uh, around the corner called Mr. Phillips. <laughs> he sat there in his Lidwardian starched collar. I think he probably moved into the area in well, 1929 with a house had been built. Right. And uh, it wasn't inspiring. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of The Music Room, which was hopefully explained well enough in the intro there. I have very fond memories of learning the cello and the piano and getting stuck into organised groups like orchestras and choirs. I was so lucky that these things even existed and were just part of the wallpaper back in the 80s when I was in school. There's a wider issue to be explored about the cuts to free specialist music education that have happened over the last decade or so. And if the money the government spends on music education in the UK is actually getting to everyone who needs it. But for now, we celebrate... In this podcast, you're going to hear from professional composers, songwriters and musicians recanting stories and memories of how they got started. And we'll be hearing from the amazing composer Kevin Sargent about the people who influenced and inspired him. And hang around, because later on, he'll be leaving an item and a piece of advice in the music room. And you never know, it might help you. So this is a little section called Music Stories, where I would ordinarily read out your stories and memories. But because this is the very first episode of The Music Room, I thought it would be appropriate for me to tell you my music story. Don't worry, though. I'm not going to do this in every episode. It's over to you after this. In each episode, henceforth, I'm going to be reading out listener contributions. And if you prefer to send a voice note, all the links are in the show notes. So go and take a look. My music story begins when I was around three years old. We had a piano in the house, my older brother was having lessons, and in what seemed like the world's biggest injustice, my parents hadn't considered that at three I would be perfectly ready for piano lessons, and in frustration I would bite the piano keys, being at the perfect height for my mouth at three years old, and my little teeth marks were still there when I passed grade eight many years later. It was actually the cello that got me started on my way though. My brother Andy had started a year or two before and so naturally I wanted to do the same. So when the opportunity came up at age seven to miss geography every week, I took it. Mrs Knott was a brilliant teacher and set me on a course that would end with me playing in the county orchestra years later, inadvertently learning all about orchestration, which comes in handy as a professional composer. Meanwhile, at the age of 10, that yearning for the piano was still there, so off I went for lessons. Mrs Griffiths was strict, so strict that at times I got a rap on the knuckles with a ruler if my hands weren't in the correct position. And at this point, I have to say, I've heard from some of you who've had awful, awful educational experiences. Having had one myself, I totally understand and can empathise 
how off-putting that is. I don't recommend the ruler as a motivational tool. It really put me off. But instead of quitting, my parents found a, a nicer teacher who was way less strict but made lessons more enjoyable. My third teacher, Helen Hammond, struck the right balance at a time when I was ready to fly. And after her initial shock that I wasn't quite sure of the most basic scales, pretty soon she was chatting to me about my week while I'd played those scales, making learning as much a part of my everyday routine as having breakfast. We went through several grades in just a few years and I'm so grateful to her for putting the enjoyment back into music and learning for me. It could have gone either way before she taught me. And actually, once I'd finished those lessons and a music degree, it did for a while. I only became a professional composer in 2011 when I was 38 years old, which makes me (coughs) years old now. (laughs) I was a primary teacher and a private music tutor for a while and always tried to strike the same balance as Helen did with me. Another honourable mention goes to Steve Marshall, who was ever-present in my musical education at Comprehensive School in King Henry VIII, Abergavenny. He was another inspiring teacher, and I'm grateful to him for getting me through GCSE and A-level music and recognising I was ready for AS-level at the same time. He got me playing in the school orchestra, singing in various choir ensembles. I even did a year of organ lessons in a nearby cathedral, which is a bit random, but it all helped me hone my musical skills. So that's how I got started. Over the coming episodes, I'll be reading out your personal stories and memories. So if you'd like to share how you got started and give a shout out to the people who helped you or the establishments or groups that helped you become who you are today, connect with me via Twitter, Instagram or Facebook or come and join the Music Room Facebook group and tell your story there. All the links are in the show notes and I really look forward to hearing from you. Today's guest is BAFTA nominated, Ivan Avello nominated, Royal Television Society nominated, Music and Sounds Award nominated, as well as the recipient for awards such as Pre-Europa Best Drama for We'll Take Manhattan and International Emmys for Family Films Katie for CBBC and Ratburger for Sky. He's a classically trained pianist who's toured the world in bands, performed comedy in the West End and more recently was elected Media Committee Chair and Board Director of the Ivers Academy for Music Creators, the UK's leading organisation campaigning on behalf of composers and music creators. So let's find out what he's up to at the moment and then let him take us on a trip down memory lane. Kevin Sargent, welcome to the Music Room. Thank you very much, Gareth. I'm very, uh, very pleased and honoured to be here. I can see you on screen here. Uh, you're in a very nice, airy, light space, it uh, looks like. Where are you? Yeah, I'm up in the city of Newcastle, which is my new home. I've been here for about uh, three and a half years. And uh, recently, I've found myself uh, a creative home here at Northern Dance, which is a charity up here. And it's uh, run by a guy called David Leonard, who is improving prospects and encouraging activity in the arts up here we're in Oosburn which is a sort of kind of trendy part of of Newcastle there's lots of sort of startups and things like that here um we're just along from the Clooney the the venue here and this is a a dance studio next door there's um, a big dance space and lots of musical instruments and lots of digital tech and things like that um one of the things they're doing here is the interface between performance and new technology digital technologies which is quite exciting I'm sort of I've become composer in residence here, effectively. Yeah, a wonderful sense of community. Yes, for us composers particularly, who a lot of us work alone, um, it's really nice to be out, out and about and with 
with like-minded people. It's very yeah. stimulating. Stops us getting into <laughs> depressive spirals sitting at home, <laughs> particularly over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Kevin, you have a long list of credits for TV and film with award nominations, and in fact, you're the recipient of awards too. And listeners can scroll through your credited works on IMDb via the show notes. I'll put a link in there. One thing I've always wanted to talk to you about, though, is The Hour. It was such a cool period drama, wasn't it? That uh, one. I, I suppose, yes. Well, so, yes, I came on to the second series for that series. Yeah, ah, but, right. Uh, yeah, so I wasn't the initial composer on it. Um, Daniel Giorgetti did a fantastic job on the first series. Uh, but for reasons I don't know, he didn't do the second one. And I was lucky enough to come in, which was quite a challenge because it was, you've got to inherit the mantle of the show, you know, the kind of sound world, but yeah. also bring your own kind of voice, you know. But it was such a such a wonderful show to work on you know such great scripts and fantastic performances it, it does make your job much easier <laughs> as yeah a composer. the better yeah. mat- the material writing music for less well-crafted stuff i think can be a real challenge obviously it was a tough gig it was a very tough gig mm. um in terms of you know everyone has such high ambitions for it and, you know so you know constant interrogation of what was the tone and what was right and what was wrong but i was very pleased to be able to step up to it in that regard the, yeah. the quality thing you were talking about it just oozed quality for me you know we're all fans of tv dramas but you know that one really stood out for me so oh, um, well thank you very much i'm, I'm glad it, i think people who, who liked it really loved it but they just yeah. kind of weren't enough at the time and it was i think uh, we were all expecting and hoping it would go to a third series but because um, we left it on a bit of a okay, spoiler alert a bit of a cliffhanger Um, but uh, yeah just didn't get recommissioned because it just didn't quite find its audience I think the BBC Mm. was going through some tough times at the time as well so it looked a bit too much like navel gazing (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it didn't happen but uh, yeah there's a lot lot of love for that show out there and um, I'm I'm very pleased to be part of it fantastic do you have other things going on at the moment is it all based in your little creative community Um, at the moment um, I, I don't have a big operation you know I'm very much I tend to be a kind of one man operation you know, i don't have assistance on on any permanent basis you know obviously i pull in people that i i use you know and the hour for all its high quality it wasn't a high budget show never you know oh. uh, it it looked good and because the scripts were good i think it attracted good people yeah. but it wasn't a high budget show by any stretch and that's kind of where i've occupied i i work in that sort of mid-budget kind of area i like to think i'm the uh, the best composer in my price range <laughs> <laughs> ah yes yeah i've just finished uh, the beaker girls for cbbc with a long-term patron of mine john mckay who's producing and directing on that which is a, a lot of fun i mean and a lovely lovely show to to write emotional music for and fun and playful and um yeah that's very exciting to be working on so we are here to talk about your formative years how music education has impacted you as a composer so if we're ready to go back in time (laughs) shall we go (laughs) just sit comfortably yes okay here we go thank you doctor oh i'm sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure yes those sort of uh, those sort of things make some composers a lot of money i'm sure (laughs) oh absolutely so what are your earliest memories of music and more specifically of you feeling like you wanted to play that creative feeling for you right well I, I grew up in a musical household not professionally but very keen amateur musicians were my parents uh, they met doing amateur operatics at the Fulham Light Operatic Society in the early 1960s 
given my age here. So there was all this singing in the house. They would always be rehearsing a show, Gilbert and Sullivan or Guys and Dolls or La Belle Hélène, Offenbach, Operetta and things like that. Um, my mum had a great singing voice, as did my dad. My dad um, still does. And so there was always rehearsing in the house. You know, there's a piano. There was, it was always part of the, the atmosphere in the house. But they were Welsh as well. You know, um, my mum's Welsh, my dad's half Welsh, so there's a strong musical uh, thread in that as well. Heidi. Uh, yeah, quite. Um, uh, this is, and I was in, we were in southwest London right now, in the suburbs, Rains Park of southwest London. Um, kind of mock Tudor between the walls suburb, you can picture that. Yeah, so it was always in the house, and uh, so whenever one showed any musical enthusiasm, I think it was leapt upon by my parents, you know, in that regard, particularly my mum, you know. So if I responded to some music on the TV, which was quite often, I think, you know, drumming along to the Crossroads theme or something. <laughs> or conducting a test card, I think my mother, yeah. It's, Crossroads was huge, wasn't it? Um, it's mean, hard it, to underestimate how it, it, <laughs> significant that was in many homes. So uh, things like that. But I mean, if that was, you know, that was, I was probably a rather irritatingly precocious kind of child uh, in, that, in that regard. Um, soon had that kind of knocked out of me. <laughs> Life and school and my peers. So I think music was in the house as a part of life. It wasn't seen as something that you consumed. It was something that you inhabited, which is, I think, a really important thing. And I think some, I see that as being very, very lucky for me. Um, and, you know, I did enjoy sort of TV themes. And I remember mum would... Uh, point out things like John Barry's music and go, oh, listen, oh I love this. And I, I listen to it and go, yeah, that's right. You know, I'm probably only sort of six or seven or something. Uh, the Persuaders or something like that, you know, and those kind of TV themes, the concentrated encapsulations of the show. I'd often watch title sequences of shows and then not watch the show. I'd just stay for the title sequence and then go <laughs> off and do something else. I probably didn't have the concentration to watch the show. I was yeah. probably, you know, not a neurotypical kid. My attention spans weren't great. You know, I was all over the place. I was fairly bright for my for my age i suppose but my attention wasn't what it was and, and I, I could be a bit all over the place but the creative side of things you know drawing and and writing and sketching and copying and comics and things like that you know that was the kind of kid i was so music was a sort of sideline of that you know but uh, i had my first piano lessons i was about eight i think and i went to this octogenarian uh, around the corner called mr philps <laughs> we sat there in this sort of Edwardian starched collar. I think he'd probably moved into the area in 1930 or well, 1929 <laughs> when the house had been built. Right? And, uh, um, and it wasn't inspiring. I was with him for about six months, but I just wasn't practicing, um, wasn't inspired to do that. So mm. we stopped the lessons. It wasn't worth the money. It seemed yeah, I had a yeah. very similar experience, actually. Right. Yeah, my first, you know, I'd been chomping at the bit, uh, as I explained in the intro to play the piano and when I got there I had the most uninspiring teacher yeah uh, it really puts you off doesn't it it's very easy to confuse the world with the teacher if the teacher's not right and um, yeah. it can be and it puts off a lot of people and I think the right teacher and an inspiring teacher and the right fit of teacher yeah. you, know, you might have to try a few to try and find the right teacher for your child because you know, they all have different sort of strengths and the kind of Edwardian Victorian sort of ruler across the, <laughs> the knuckles you know, which is, yeah, it, it's probably still legal then. That wasn't the case with this teacher, yeah. but because you know, he was a very, very it, it, gen it was for me. Oh, was it? That, right. That's exactly okay. what happened. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's yeah. all that's going to do is increase your anxiety around the instrument. And that is 
really, really dangerous. So what happened? Clearly, you got back into music. Well, you know, the, you know this, that was when I was eight, you know, so, yeah. uh, and I was, you know, I, I, I'd pick out stuff on the piano and then we tried another piano teacher when I was about 11. But again, it was another, you know, it was just someone local, a uh, 70-year-old Mrs. Lewis, you know, who I, I'd go along and I'd, you know, we didn't do grades. There was nothing structured. She'd sort of put a piece in front of me on a little piece of music. We paid, you know, I paid 10p to buy the piece of music off her. And then, you know, she'd play through it or I'd pick through it. I'd go away for a week. I'd do no practice. And then 20 minutes before the lesson, I'd sit down and play it a couple of times, by which time I'd kind of memorized it. And so I'd go and play it in the lesson. She'd tick and the date, VG, and then sell me the next piece. And there was no engagement in the teaching process. And I could coast clearly on my ear. You know, I had, evidently I had a really good memory and a good ear so I could pick things. And I wasn't being stretched at all uh, in that regard. And no one, you know, it was just coasting along. And I don't think my parents were really, they didn't really know what to do with me in that regard, I think, you know. And, uh, and I, you know, so it wasn't necessarily the happiest of homes I was in. You know, my parents split up, you know, so there was, there was a lot of other challenges around me at that time, you know. But the minute I stopped the lessons with dear old Mrs. Lewis of Cherry Tree Lane, I'd be at the piano two hours a night or two hours a day just picking out stuff. And I was starting to hear music. I was starting to enjoy music that was my music. That it wasn't pop records and things, but it was film soundtracks and things like that. You know, 1977 Star Wars had come out and that's, that score suddenly it's a revolutionized sort of film music in, in the in the discourse, in the public's mind as well. I had the double album before the film came out, so when the film came out, it was like a video to the album that I already knew and loved. And you couldn't get the dots for it, you know, in the suburbs. There was no scores and things, so I, I'd i sit down and try and pick out the, the John Williams stuff on the piano, you know, and with a cassette recorder, I'd like, take the record on our new ITT music system and just play bars, you know, to say, why do I love that bit? What's, what's so great about that? I want to be able to play that and analyse it. And um, I wanted to inhabit the emotional effect the music would have on me. And I was starting to deconstruct it and, and analyse it. Yeah. And then when I went to a high school, a boys' high school, uh, Rains Park High, the lessons became more structured, I suppose. We, we'd have music lessons there. And uh, it was a yeah, state comprehensive, non-selective in, uh, intake. But the head of music there, I think, was one of the biggest influences on me, a guy called Bill Crow, a very shy Glaswegian who's a youngster, he's probably only about 27, 28, head of music in a slightly rough and tumble boys' school in a southwest London suburb. And he was remarkable, really, in his own quiet way. He was, I think he was trained at Trinity. Um, he didn't know what to do with me over the course of the five years I was there. <laughs> but he, you know, we didn't have choirs, we didn't have string players, but we had a wind band, so, um, so the boys had a wind band, and he would do arrangements for the wind band, and, he, and these would be arrangements of, you might have Glenn Miller or something like that, or you might, you might have the, the carols at Christmas or something, but he'd do Baggy Trousers by Madness, or yeah. the Crusaders' Street Life, you know, so the stuff that, was, that we knew as kids, and, and so he'd draw our ears towards good music of all genres. He was really, really broad in his tastes. Um, meanwhile, he'd be teaching the GC, uh, well, the O-level as it was then, GCSE and A-level courses, which I took, but not as a performer, because, I, you know, again, I didn't really have the piano. I was a kind of a busker, you know, and I couldn't, you know, because I hadn't had the structured lessons, but I could play by ear really well, because I spent so much time analysing records and analysing stuff where you couldn't get the dots, you know, whether it's, you know, prog records, Genesis records, or Peter Gabriel records, or film soundtracks and things like that. Backed up with the theory of GCSE and then 
A level, but I had no grades. And the, I, uh, there was a drum teacher there as well. We had a, a very scary drum teacher, um, uh, and I think I always wanted to play the drums. There's something about just the physicality and the rhythmicality of, of drums would be something that I, I think I'd always wanted to do. But we didn't know where to start looking for a drum teacher. You know, parents would. It was a very very loving home. But I, yeah, I think um, I was a bright kid, and I was kind—I of, felt to some extent I was kind of left to my own devices to sort out my own education because I was doing okay at school up to about the age of thirteen or fourteen. Um, I was quite bright academically, and clearly self-motivated on the music side as well. On the music side of things, yes, but I think I, I just didn't know how to ask or where to ask, or you know, no, I wasn't being taken in hand by a, a mentor. But Bill. And once we got to the, the high school, I, I started drum lessons in the fourth form when I was, what, 13, rising 14. I don't know what the phrase is for that age now. So it's like year, year 11 and year 11. money. You know? Okay, in the, yeah, in the, in the decimal. <laughs> is it year 11? Oh, I had five. Uh, yeah. Year nine, I think, isn't it? <laughs> year, year nine. Year nine. <laughs> totally wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I had five. Oh, I used to be a teacher <laughs> as well. Yeah. Go on. So there was a drum teacher, so we, I was having drum lessons, and, and big, scary, ginger monster of a man who... We all nicknamed the Honey Monster, who's <laughs> big and gruff and scary, and you sit there in a bit, you know, in terror. You know, have we done our practice this week? <laughs> no, Mr. Clifford. No. And for economy reasons, you could have a shared lesson with another player. So you two of you in the room are doing, you know, have you done it? And it was all about the rudiments. We weren't playing kit for the first year. We just had to sit on a, on a snare drum and learn our, our rudiments which is a really, really good way of learning, but it will put off a lot of kids who want to play the drum straight away. But rudiments, kids, if you're listening, rudiments are the hacks. You know, scales, arpeggios, and theory, if you can actually apply, if you can find a way of applying yourself to it and, and putting it, they, they, they are hacks. They are shortcuts to ability, I think. You know, there are other ways of doing music. Obviously, you, know, you don't have to be able to write or read music to create these days. Um, but for me, on my journey, I was pleased to have had those rudiments to start before I went on the kit. You know. But actually, I was sharing the lessons and I kind of lost enthusiasm after about 18 months when uh, O-level exams were coming in and I was feeling the pressure of needing to hunker down for those qualifications. Um, <laughs> and Nothing's uh, ever wasted, though. Is no, it? completely not. Absolutely. Yeah, even a year of good, good quality lessons will, will pay dividends. So, Bill, uh, coming back to the school... Um, Bill Crow, uh, not only just doing arrangements for the band, also wrote musicals for the school to perform. You know, he actually wrote his own music. Like you know, he did. Scripts, songs, and did all the arrangements and MD'd them. So he was modelling that you could be a composer and get stuff out there and it work and people did clap afterwards, you know. And so, you know, we did uh, A Piece of Pie, which was a Damon Runyon show. We did, he did a Flash Gordon adaptation which was all about Fla flash gordon the musical flash gordon the musical yeah uh, yeah i now want to see that <laughs> yeah, it was great it was good fun <laughs> but also with a sort of social conscience it was flash gordon but it was all about violence in the movies it was you know post jaws and the, and the 1970s when m movies were getting a lot more violent and so he was sort of making a point about that and he did one called rodeo which was all about ronald reagan and the sort of american sort of things that he was skating quite close to the wind as a teacher, you know, because th these musicals were, had political content, you know, yeah. actually quite left-wing political content, um, which probably rubbed a few backs up the wrong way, to mix metaphor. And we had the Merton Youth Theatre, which was another thing, which was 
conducted by these very enthusiastic um, teachers around the around the borough, Con- entirely voluntary. But I was at a boys' school, and that was a way of meeting girls. Was you join the Merton Youth <laughs> Theatre, <laughs> and, you, and and that's where the girls were. You know, I wasn't a sporting type. You know, I've been cured of sport by school. I must admit, you know, again by not being very good at it, and then shown that oh, if you're not very good at it, this is not for you. And that mm. kind of sports as a kind of competitive thing, rather than as something to improve yourself or to be enjoyed for its own sake. And that's something I, I fear about with music: is if it's seen as a competition. And it puts people off. Uh, yeah. And I was dreadful at looking sideways as well. You know, I'd look at the other much more accomplished grade-winning musicians aged 18. You know, they've got grade 8 flute or something, or clarinet, things, and they're off to university. And I'm looking sideways thinking, I haven't got any blooming grades. And they're going into the police force or going to work for BT. They're not being, you know, being musicians. I haven't even got those. I can't ever be a musician. You know, and that was mm. that kind of competitive mindset, looking sideways. Um, and not seeing it as a long goal. When you're comparing it to sports, it kind of goes against your whole idea of what music and creativity yes. is. Yeah, it was, then. You know, I, I suppose I really wanted to be a composer, is the short answer. That was what yeah. I really wanted to be, but I didn't have the... I didn't articulate it to myself well enough, I don't think. You know, it was always in, yeah. in the back of my mind. So I ended up, after doing these, we did these musicals with, you know, Bill, Bill wrote, you know, and, and he would teachers a level so i did you know did the, did the theory and the history which i loved i mean i, I adored classical music you know even mm. um and for someone who wanted to play the drums i didn't really kind of like rock music at that time when i was having the drum lessons it was only when i was in the sixth form where i suddenly discovered sort of rock music um rock and roll if you like and prog rock and uh punk and new wave and stuff like that and suddenly i was on the drums again but i'd had that year of foundation had a you, bit of a you foundation. had foundations yeah. to yeah. the house, so, um, yeah. Thought, oh, well, yeah. I can do it. I can busk a bit of drums, you know, and there were school bands, and the staff had a school band. You know, this was a comprehensive school, but it had, it had been a grammar school until 1970. And we're now 1980s. So it been 10 years comprehensive, a broad intake, but we had a house system and a sixth form within the school, which, which gave us sort of models to look up to as kids which was great. You know, I idolised some of these cool six forms we had who could play rock guitar and mm. in bands and in the house music competitions. And again, I ended up being house music captain by the, by the end of my time there. We came fourth. I was terrible. You know, I, I had no idea because I didn't have those, <laughs> those kind of conservatoire skills that the judges were looking for. You know, I put together a rock band with my mates and we did I can't remember what we did, but, you know, we did Alice Cooper's Schools Out, you know, which didn't go down well with the judges. You know, the audiences loved it, you know, and my peers. But the judges were looking for, you know, proper, that conservatory musicianship and those kind of measurable, quantifiable skills. You know, all I had was enthusiasm, I think, <laughs> and, and a bit of theory, you know. So I felt a bit of a, a fraud leaving school at 18 so I didn't go and do a music degree because I've, I was worried I'd be found out too quickly and I wouldn't be able to cope and I probably would have been put off possibly so I, I did a performing arts degree down near Canterbury at a college that no longer exists called Nonington it was part of the University of Kent effectively it was a, a Kent degree and I thought I'll be an actor because you don't need grades for that and uh, I was in the Merton Youth Theatre uh, I was a performer and it was that sort of I wanted to do something creative and practical, not academic. I wanted to create, and I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll be an actor. We'll do music on the side. I'll be a sort of, I don't know, comedy I loved. I loved 
the pythons and not that I got news and things like that. So we were doing sketches and, at school and things like that. So that was the direction I was taking. Music as a secondary skill. And I went to do a, a performing arts degree down near Dover at Kent. And while I was there, a band used to come and play there who were friends of the guy I was living with. And they were doing quite well. They had management, they had the Pretenders management at the time, uh, Dave Hill and Chrissy Hyde. Um, and they'd had a couple of singles out on an indie label. They were touring with the Boomtown Rats and opening for The Alarm and The Truth. I don't know if you a band called The Truth uh, and The Pretenders and things like that. And they were sort of going places. And I think, oh, God, I'd love to be, wouldn't it be great to be their drummer? You know, so, but here I am stuck in this, this degree, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and playing in bands there and sort of uh, doing what was effectively a really great little degree, a uh, performing arts degree. There was a playwriting module, so we ended up writing plays. We'd, and there wasn't much to do in the wilds of Kent, so we'd, we'd put on shows. We'd do our own shows to entertain each other. So in the course of a year, we might be in like seven shows, seven or eight shows, and wow. directing our stuff. And there was a lot of self-motivating kind of stuff there because there wasn't much else to do in the Kent wheel there. You know, we mm. were sort of a long way from the bright lights. Anyway, this band would come down and they played a Halloween ball. And I'd had a bit of a jam with Ken, who was the lead singer in one of the studios. And evidently the guy I was living with had put in a good word for me because they asked me to join. And uh, they said, well, finish your degree. Look, this was October of 1984. They said, look, we've got some dates lined up in the summer next. You know, we want to get a record deal. Um, we need a drummer. You've got your head screwed on. We're not pleased with the current drummer we've got. He doesn't seem very motivated. He went on to be very successful with other acts but he just wasn't, wasn't a good fit for them I don't think you know at the time and yeah. uh, I ended up joining them in Easter of 1985 uh, and then finishing my doing my finals that summer and very very luckily as it happens we got signed to A&M by October of that year I'd never been in a studio Brilliant. you know uh, I was we were using a lot of drum machines it was the mid 80s and we were one of the first bands to be using kind of guitars with drum machines and and kind of loopy rhythms and things like that. So uh, that was really, really lucky. But I think the adaptability has been something that I've had in my life. You know, yeah. I've not been the, necessarily the best person for the job, but I've got enough adaptability and skills and learning on the, uh, and ability to absorb and learn on the job. And also kind of maybe interpersonal skills, you know. I, I, I try not to mm. <laughs> piss people off, <laughs> if I can say that on an educational <laughs> podcast. You are almost your own mentor in a way. And I think there's a lot to be said for not just putting up with what other people expect of you and trying to stay true to yourself. And I think it sounds like that's what you did at the time. And, you know, you'd never been in a studio. So what? You know, you had a gut feeling about doing it and I did it. Well, I suppose that's an interesting way of putting it. I never thought of it like that. I suppose I, I would have loved a mentor, is the truth. You know, a real Bill, he tried his best with me. You know, he, he modelled yes. the behaviour. You know, but he didn't know where to, to stick me. You know, I was just all over the place, really. Yes, he showed you what was possible. Yeah, so the, the mortals can write stuff and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it makes sense and hang together and people get entertained, you know. So, yeah, he showed me what was possible. Um, but also the whole kind of performing side of things as well is, is part of it. So I suppose, you know, when I joined the band, I'd had a lot of stage experience. You know, I might not have had the studio experience, but I wasn't scared about getting up on stage you know, and I could stand in front of an audience, you know, even behind a drum kit and 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 ham it up a bit, which I did, you yeah. know, because the, you know, the rest of the guys were too cool for that. But I could go on stage and sort of make a fool of myself a bit more and add a bit of visual excitement, even if I wasn't the best drummer, you know. So, yeah. You're a stick twiddler. 
<laughs> wasn't quite Don Powell. No, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I could just give it a bit of sweat and a bit of passion, which was not necessarily the British way yeah. and the post-punk way. <laughs> you know, I was never yeah. cool. Yeah. I remain not cool. But uh, uh, it's oh, um, contraire, oh, contraire. <laughs> but you know, no, I, I'm, no, no one would class me as that. But it was a kind of autodidact path. You know, there's something going on here, and I suppose I made sure I never closed the door on it. You know, I never took mm. a day job that was comfortable enough that you go, oh, well, I could get used to this. I, I did casual jobs in between the record contracts when we got dropped and uh, and had, ended up signing to Electra. I joined a comedy group, which was another huge turning point, doing improvised comedy, which is something that I'd, I'd seen at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1983, I think. I was on the broadcasting, uh, Sweeney and Steen, Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen and um, Peter Weir. And it was the most, one of the most electrifying shows I'd ever seen. It was the most exciting thing. These guys are making it up. This was pre-Whose Line Is It Anyway? I think. I'd never seen anything like it. It seemed so dangerous and so thrilling. I thought, oh, God, I'd love to be able to do that, you know, so... I did some workshops when the band was sort of on uh, at a low ebb. I started doing some Saturday morning workshops and I met a bunch of like-minded people there. We formed a group. We ended up finding, getting a venue. And then I did that for five years, every Saturday night in, uh, above a pub wow. just off Oxford Street. And through that, I met other people who made stuff. You know, I, that's where I met John Mackay. I've just done the Beaker Girls with him. You know, he was one of our number. You know, he went off to the National Film School. I scored some of his short films. He comes out of the film school, he gets a first look deal with film four. Um, yeah. And I become, I get to do his, his first feature. You know, I've, obviously I've got to, you know, it's not handed to me on a plate. I've got to prove myself. But I'd spent, uh, one of the other guys I'd met in, the, in the, the comedy group was working with some photographers, the Douglas Brothers, and they needed some office help at that time. So I'll go and answer the phones for 35 quid a day. It's better than painting and decorating, mm -hmm. which I was also doing at the time. So... Uh, they moved on to making pop promos and then on to commercials and I ended up being their production manager. And then when, they, wow. when the commercials came along, they said, well, look, we, we promised the commercials worked to a place in Soho. There's no production managing job anymore, but you, you want to write music, don't you? Isn't that kind of... I said, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's <laughs> kind of why I'm taking this job, you know, to, to make some contacts in the film world, or, you know, yeah. in, in the kind of making stuff world. They said, well, why don't you be our composer? So, you know, and they took... You know, they hadn't heard a note I'd written. I hadn't actually written anything by then, you know. But we flew by the seat of our pants, as did they, and I sort of moved up with them, yeah. if you like, into commercials, and I was their sort of pet composer, and they were the young Wunderkinds revolutionising 1990s <laughs> commercials, the look of 1990s commercials, it seemed. And whenever they could get a composer in, they'd, they'd give it to me, and, you know, and I was their yeah. kind of court composer. So hanging out with other people again those that secondary skills thing that having other skills that gets you into the room with the people who are making stuff if you hang around with mm. composers that's fine but they won't necessarily give you opportunities you know they mm. might assistantships and things like oh you know you could be a co-writer i suppose but mainstreaming it to the people who make the stuff the filmmakers the editors the writers to a certain extent of being in a you know being in a theatrical group a comedy group if you like or you know theater company or something like that you end up hanging out with people who learn to trust you and yeah. and they and you become like like a family in them if mm. that makes sense you know so uh, and even if i wasn't the best person for the job they trusted me that i i wouldn't let them down you know i'd find a solution and and i'd keep pushing myself you know in the first commercials i did sort of that kind of acid jazz on the first ones and, and the next thing well, we need to do something different um so i do classical thing you know so i push myself into we managed to convince the 
the agency spent ten thousand pounds on an orchestra. And I'd never written for an orchestra wow. before. You know. Wow. Um, uh, and luckily, they didn't come down at the session, so we could get it right. Um, yeah. So I've been really, really lucky. But it's been through adaptability and passion that I've got yeah. where I am. You know. Um, so it sounds like your secondary school teacher had a lot to do with your attitude to doing things for yourself. Yes. If in all of your story, there's a kind of a, a single figure who inspired you, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, I suppose, yes. And uh, allow me to have confidence that what you're doing is just, just keep doing it. Just keep doing mm. it. Put, take the risk of getting out there. Don't judge yourself by other people's standards necessarily. You know, aim for them, but don't let it stop you doing stuff and have yeah. fun doing it as well. Um, yeah. You've got to enjoy the process. Otherwise... If you're not getting that out of the, out of it, you're not getting anything. You might as well just go get a, a bank job or something. You know, if you want to do, you know, <laughs> try not to kill the goose that's that, that you <laughs> der derive the, the satisfaction from. You know, regardless of money and things like that. You know, and making a profession of it, keeping the enthusiasm for the things important. And I've taken some choices where I've done jobs which aren't hadn't necessarily been professionally advantageous or the credits and things, like, but just because I was becoming disconnected from the work and. Yeah feeling like I was writing to order too much and just trying to deliver, which is, you know, the TV composer's job is often mm. that. It's, it's a bit of a sausage factory sometimes, you know, you just got to produce a lot of music very quickly. But that's the output. You also need to feed the input and, and create stuff where it's, it's more experimental or more, you know, more playful or you know, more expressive, yeah. you know, getting a balance yes. and other things. But yes, mentors and people saying, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful writer, a guy called Joel Morris, grail frit on twitter he writes for jason Hazley, and uh, he's a, a dear pal of mine and he says it's the, it's the kind of you'll do nipper kind of thing so right pick that up right and you know and just hanging out with people who make the stuff getting in on the ground floor somehow you know it's it's kind of harder now because we've got such social inequalities i think you know you the ability to be on hand in london is quite hard and very expensive you know but just making it just making stuff work with what you've got yeah, and where you are is really important. And also getting out there, like you say, the interpersonal skills. Us composers who like sitting on their own in a darkened room, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's of such benefit to go out and mix with people. Absolutely, I agree. I agree. And for someone who's as sociable as me, you know, I'm quite sociotropic. You know, I, I like people. I enjoy people, even though you know I, I have my own anxieties. <laughs> you know, and so things. I've picked a job which is the busier I get, the more isolated I can become, mm. you know, uh, and that's not healthy. You need to balance it with something else. I think, yeah. you know, getting out there, being part of a team, which is another part of, you know, the media composers thing is, you know, you're, it's not about your music. It's about the whole project and subsuming your ego into what's good for the project. It's not about what's the greatest piece of music you can write. It's about how can you make the story told better? How can you elevate it? Yeah. You know? Kevin, I'm asking each guest to leave an item that helped them in their music education and a piece of advice for any aspiring composers who might be listening. So what item would you like to leave in the music room? I had to think about this and I was trying to think of something that would, would be of use to the most number of aspiring things. And it's probably a bit archaic because there are now far more modern ideas. But in my development, I think the humble cassette recorder which was what was to hand, was, for me, instrumental in my development. And this is for a number of reasons. Uh, first reason was that I could record records and I could play the same bar, you know, just... 
rewind it, play it, learn what that chord was, try and crack the puzzle of the harmony that it was, you know, trying to work out what those chords were, what's the voicing? And when, and when, you, when you finally get it, it was so satisfying. So that, that the ability to record material and zone in on a particular sequence to try and analyze why it, why it made you feel that way you know what was it in that Shostakovich symphony that made you felt like the ground was falling out from you know, um without getting the dots you know you can just go and get the score and then that's fine but actually working it out yourself yeah um teaches you so much and develops your ear and there's um, a lot you can do with a cassette recorder as well i mean you can get more than one and do all sorts of creative oh, things well, absolutely as, as machines yeah so um, <laughs> yeah. and you can you can do this now with a with a voice recorder on your phone just record that bit and play and rewind yeah. you know but yeah so I'm, I'm very when i say cassette recorder i mean i, I probably means the recording device of some description so no i'll, what, I'll, yeah. I'll take the cassette recorder oh, i think yes. that would be of great <laughs> great fun and great yeah. use in the music room uh so what about the piece of advice what would you advise aspiring composers who might be listening like, compose well it, it's something that drew masters said and he he denies or doesn't doesn't even remember saying it but he says try and learn as many instruments as you can up to about the equivalent of grade three you know so you can play a few scales on them because it's very easy to make stuff in the box as we call it in the computer using mm. fancy software and all these these things and after a certain time you hear a lot of this and it all kind of sounds the same and it's not about being virtuosic you don't have to be a virtuoso on something but if someone's recorded something and I can hear a slightly badly played clarinet on it or something, I thought, they've committed to that clarinet and I can hear the intention there. You know, I can hear that it's yeah. not well recorded, but it leaps out of the speakers in, in the field of music by the yard, which is, I'm afraid, a lot of media music is by the numbers mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But if you can experiment with the real sound sources, you know, whether it's instrument or whether it's just found recordings and things like that, Try and make your own sounds. That's what's going to make you stand out. And if you haven't yeah. got a job, spend the time making your own experiments and recording them. And yeah, if it's an instrument, you play a clarinet, buy a flute, find a flute in a charity shop or something like that, and use sound source this way just to create a fresh palette and make the people who might be hiring you just make their ears prick up a bit better. You know, other, other than everything that sounds very glossy and epic or genre specific. That is brilliant advice. Kevin Sargent, thank you for joining me. You are officially the first Music Room alumnus. Thank you very much. Alumnus? Is that uh, right? Alumnus, yes. Uh, yes. So thank you ever so much and uh, have a brilliant day. Uh, and you, Gareth. Thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure.